Our next case takes us to Suffolk. We followed the dogs up a ditch, and as I walked past, I thought there was a shop mannequin to start with. What could you see? All of them. There will be a person out there who knows the answer to this. How does the body of a young mother from South London end up in a field 120 miles away in rural East England? Why is a man arrested for her murder when police have no evidence against him? Why was she killed? And most importantly, who did it? These questions in the case of Jeanette Kempton have gone unanswered for 30 years. Welcome back to a fresh episode of Unfinished. My name is Tom Bristow and I'm a journalist with a newspaper called the Eastern Daily Press. This podcast explores the many troubling and fascinating cold cases in my patch of East England. In the first three episodes of Unfinished, we looked at the death of 14-year-old schoolgirl Joanna Young in the town of Watton, Norfolk in 1992. In these next episodes, we're heading south to the county of Suffolk, as well as Brixton in South London. Once again, we'll speak to the key people who haven't spoken publicly about this case for 30 years. We'll also look at possible links this murder could have to one of England's most notorious serial killers. But let's start by going back 30 years to Saturday, February the 18th, 1989. It's a cold afternoon and two local men are out in the North Suffolk countryside, near a village called Wangford, hunting rabbits. Jordan Spenlove and Kevin Block are coming back from the day's hunt and walking through a field belonging to a local landlord called the Earl of Stradbrook. As they walk along, their dogs run to a ditch by a hedge, and Kevin goes over to explore. There he sees what he thinks is a shop mannequin. He nudges it with his gun. It's the body of a 31-year-old mum from Brixton, Jeanette Kempton, known as Jean, or Blonde Jean. She had a blow to her head, but had been strangled to death, and had last been seen leaving a pub in Brixton 16 days earlier. Here is Kevin, recalling the case to me 30 years on. We were following the dogs up the ditch, and as I walked past I thought that was a shop mannequin to start with. What could you see? All of that. Just a body lying in the bottom of the ditch, with um, bits of grass round her. Her top was open, there was a scratch across her chest, her calves had been eaten away and meat off her fingers and her face too. But her eyeballs were still there. What were you thinking at that point? Well, it's a dead body and we had to go and tell the policeman who lives on Wangford Bypass. Mm. And, to him, and then he came down and that's when we left, really. My colleague James Carr, who covers this patch, took Kevin back to the field where Jeanette was found. I meet Kevin at a pub in nearby Blytheborough and follow him to the Earl of Stradbrook's estate. We travel along the A12 towards Lowestoft until we reach the Wangford Bypass and turn left towards Henham Quarry. Roughly half a mile up the road, Kevin comes to a sudden stop in a lay-by opposite the quarry. He gets out of his van and leans on a gate as he gazes out at the rolling landscape before him. Today, a waist-high barbed wire fence surrounds the field, keeping trespassers out whereas in 1989, the field was open to all, unprotected. Kevin hasn't been back here since he and Jordan discovered the body of Jeanette 30 years ago. It's overcast and cold, with a biting wind ripping through the air. And back 
30 years ago what kind of place was it like to come how was it lovely quiet nobody about is this somewhere where only local people know to come not really I suppose if you're driving along you'd see a lane but you know from here to London there must be millions of lanes yeah. right here how, how did this area look pretty similar 30 years ago but they just took a lot of trees down there haven't they yeah so all the in, in front of us now there is a a, a big pile of um trees that have been cut down and hedges that have been cut down where once there was a ditch right along here yeah yeah along here probably yeah see i had in my in my mind that it would would be quite it, it, we are in quite an isolated place but we're very near the road yeah if you'd have parked up parked up there that, you'd that, drive down, wouldn't you? oh you could game. drive down here yeah and that goes right through the other road so he would have driven onto where is a field now, yeah. and that that next field there would have been locked. No, 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 because you could drive right through, right across them fields. There's a line go up there, and come out on another road. Got you. So this ditch would have just been by the side of the road going like, through. Like a dry ditch, it was. It just seems a strange place. Look, it could have been anywhere, but we try to be detectives now. Don't we? <laughs> it takes a few moments for Kevin to get his bearings and locate the fateful spot. The ditch where Jeanette's body was found has long since been filled in and replaced with a bramble bush stretching for roughly 30 metres. That, that looked like the ditch had had water in it because when the water goes that leaves the grass like round the edge that flowed down so that's well, that made me thought that there was water in there but that's all round the edge of it. Not loads. Not enough to cover her up. Yeah. But it just looked as if she'd kind of been left there and just yeah. hoped that no one would see it. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't have said there was much to try to cover her up at all, no. Because, as I said, her skin and everything was clean. As Kevin suggests, Jeanette's body had been in that ditch for some time. But only the killer knows exactly how long and why it was done there. We will, however, be speaking to the detective who led this investigation later on, who can offer some clues. And we do also know what happened to Jeanette on the day she disappeared. Jeanette was last seen alive, leaving a pub more than two weeks earlier, 120 miles away in Brixton, on the evening of February the 2nd. She had been drinking since lunchtime in the South London pub, called the Loughborough, on Loughborough Road. The Loughborough has sadly gone the way of many old pubs, and is now an apartment block. But let's go back there to find out what happened that day. Here's James. Thursday, February 2nd, 1989 started much like every other day did for Jeanette. She woke up and chatted with her sons before seeing them off to school. At the time, she was sharing a home in Brixton's Myatt Fields estate with her two sons and ex-husband, Paul Kempton. Jeanette and Paul had first met 17 years before, in 1972, when she was 15. They fell in love and married the next year. However, cracks in the marriage quickly began to appear. From 1975, Jeanette was known to suffer from bouts of depression and began drinking heavily. This, in turn, put a strain on the marriage. In 1979, the couple separated, divorcing the following year. But they remained on good terms, and by 1985, Paul had moved back into the family home to live with Jeanette and the boys. During this period, it was fairly common for Jeanette to disappear for a few days at a time on drinking binges. Paul would later tell the inquest into her death, it was not unusual for her to stay out all night, so I was not immediately worried. 
But after a couple of days when she didn't come back for any clothes and hadn't left any word, I did get worried. Jeanette had also begun a relationship with a married man named Barry Coleman. Barry was 20 years her senior and the pair formed an unlikely couple. On that Thursday, the last day she was seen alive, her ex-husband Paul had the day off work. He and Jeanette ran various errands and went shopping on the Brixton Road. At 12.30pm, they arrived at the Loughborough Hotel pub. They were the only people in the pub that day and quickly began their drinking, with Jeanette having her usual mix of lager and shorts. Over the next few hours, the pub began to fill up and the pair were joined by Barry Coleman. While the exact details are not known, there does not appear to have been any animosity between Jeanette's ex-husband and her lover, with the couple's living arrangements purely constructed to benefit their children. Barry had collected his redundancy pay packet and had come to the pub to cash the cheque. While reports vary to the specific amount, some saying 100, others 300, we know that he gave the money to Jeanette as a loan. The money and her purse have never been found. Around 4.15pm, Paul Kempton left the pub to return home and prepare tea for the couple's children, while Jeanette stayed and drank with her lover. This was the last time Paul saw his ex-wife, and when he returned, three hours later, she was gone. At around six, Jeanette and Barry visited the Five Ways florist nearby to collect a wreath of red and white flowers for a friend's funeral the following day. Jeanette would never attend the funeral, and the wreath has never been found. They returned to the pub for another drink. Jeanette was keen to move on to a new pub, while Barry wanted to call it a night. In May 1989, Jeanette's case was broadcast on the national TV show Crime Watch. Here's audio from that episode. Come on, not nearly finished. Oh, no, I've had a game. I don't want to go nowhere. Never mind a union. Oh, come on. You're not going to leave me now, are you? No, I'm not going to leave you. I'm just going home. You do what you want. I've finished my drink now. Come on, let's go down the union. No, I don't want to go to the union. I've had enough, Jean. No, I'm sick of it in here. Look, I want to go down the union. Come with me well, down you, the union. Look, you go to the union. I've had enough. I'm out of the game. At quarter past seven, they left the Loughborough Hotel. A woman who lives nearby told police she had spotted Jeanette. She appeared to be drunk and had got into Barry's car. However, Barry later told police this had not been the case. He recalled that Jeanette had been drinking a lot during the afternoon and into the evening, so much so that she could hardly stand. He had offered her a lift home, but she declined and didn't get into his car. Barry said the last he saw Jeanette, she was walking down the road to another pub, carrying the wreath in her hand. Jeanette Kempton was not seen alive again. So that's what we know about what Jeanette did that day. But what do we know about Brixton at the time? James headed back to the Loughborough to meet local historian and secretary of the Brixton Society, Alan Piper, to get a better idea and to retrace Jeanette's walk from the pub to her house. We're starting from the corner of uh, Loughborough Road and heading down Evandale Road, which will be the more direct route to take if somebody's walking back uh, to where she lived. And uh, what was this road like 30 years ago? Was it just a safe journey home? Uh, well, it's, it's a relatively quiet street. These are all sort of mid-Victorian houses which the council had uh, refurbished in the uh, early 1970s. Now, we've just come past the Victorian houses and we've got part of what's the uh, Myatsfield South Estate, which is uh, a rather more complex sort of 
upkeep of flats, you only go up to about four or five storeys, but you've got sort of walkways and so on, which provide lots of scope for uh, muggers to lie in wait. Is that quite an issue? Uh, yes, yes, because a lot of those estates from the sort of beginning of the 70s um, designed very much in terms of trying to uh, keep people and cars separated, which was all very well, but uh, it meant, again, you hadn't got that sort of casual surveillance. Now, if we turn left here, which I think is the way that she would have gone, uh, onto uh, this is Ackerman Road, which turns into uh, Lovian Road. I think this might be the best spot to, to cross. Uh, now, in front of us, um, on the left-hand side of Ackerman Road, there's a very large um, development completed very recently. It used to be the Marksfields uh, North Estate, uh, but that was rebuilt by... Um, the council uh, in the past couple of years so what uh, what she would have known um, has largely gone now another thing which has changed uh, since uh, 1989 is that the road is now a just a simple two-way road mm. but this used to be dual carriageway through here with a boiler house in the centre of the road much like the pub where she once drank Jean's home has gone through the process of gentrification in its space stands a sleek six-storey building, a couple of years old, filled with young professionals making use of the nearby travel links. If you had walked through the doors of the large Victorian pub 30 years ago, you would have likely been confronted by a haze of cigarette smoke and day drinkers getting an early start. At the time, the pub, a short walk off the Brixton Road, was Jeanette's local and was a popular meeting place for drinkers such as her. Today, it gives off a very different vibe. Like many grand Victorian buildings in the area, it has been transformed into a block of flats, with the addition of a coffee shop and art gallery on the ground floor. The sound of someone ordering a pint of cheap lager or a strong short has been replaced by endless requests for a flat white. And Alan tells me about what he remembers of the time. So the pub itself closed something like 20 or so years ago. Uh, if you go back to 1989, um, the area was just starting to recover from uh, a long process of, sort of redevelopment and council demolitions and so on. By the uh, late 1980s, um, there's been something like sort of 10, 15 years of a sort of a, a more uh, a more moderate approach with properties being refurbished. Um, the big clearance schemes have come to an end. Um, so the area is starting to settle down again. It probably hits rock bottom about the time of the original Brixton riot in 1981. Uh, you know, it's that slow process of, of recovery. There were a few um, notorious cases which tended to sort of hit the headlines um, for a period of time. Um, I think there was a case of a, uh, a serial killer around the sort of uh, late 80s, early 90s. The only known serial killer operating around Brixton at that time was a man called Michael Lupo. The Italian was jailed in 1987 for life for killing four men, including one whom he dumped on a railway embankment in Brixton. But uh, somebody simply disappearing might not have attracted as much attention. But the idea that um, a woman could have gone missing at, at that point, was that something that would have caused a lot of concern among the community from someone who's lived here all, all his life? Do you I, I don't think it would have shocked people as much because... At that time, the, a lot of the population were relatively transient. Yeah. Uh, we still had a, the sort of hangover from the council's sort of uh, 
demolition program of a lot of properties around here still being squatted. Um, so they were people who sort of might be moved on by the council fairly quickly if the council wanted to do something with the property, but uh, um, it's you know, a relatively volatile population. Uh, and in terms of local crimes, I think that's a time when there's a lot more mugging going on. So, so if somebody just goes out of the door here and sort of turns right, then uh, it's relatively quiet residential streets. And since a lot of the um, area is sort of blocks of flats, you haven't actually got sort of people's um, front doors or front windows sort of immediately close to the, the pavement. So a lot of the blocks are set well back. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so somebody is just sort of uh, approached by somebody and persuaded to get into a car or something, as distinct from somebody being sort of uh, violently attacked. No, it's going to attract very little notice. It, it didn't attract much attention at the time, uh, and you know, perhaps also because of the body being found well away from London, um, it might have gone sort of unremarked, even in the local paper. In Suffolk, however, it made front-page news. Woman's body in ditch for three weeks, read a headline in the Eastern Daily Press on February the 22nd. By February 24th, the woman had been named as Jeanette Kempton. But the detective in charge of the case, Chief Superintendent John Saunders, had his work cut out. John was head of Suffolk Constabulary's Criminal Investigation Department, CID, making him the most senior detective in the force. He retired in 1997, but still lives in Suffolk. Here is what he remembers in the immediate aftermath of Jeanette's body being found. So John, thanks very much for uh, coming to, to speak to me. Can you give us a sense of how unusual Jeanette's case was? Uh, there's not a great deal uh, in terms of undetected uh, murders or serious cases in Suffolk over the years. Uh, and it was rare. Um, if we take the village of Wangford, for example, uh, it's up there on the A12, but uh, is unknown to a lot of people and uh, in all honesty I can't ever remember another crime occurring in Wangford during my career so uh, it was unusual to have something of this nature uh, discovered there. And, um, do, do you remember where you first were when, when you heard uh, a body had been found in, in Wangford? Uh, yes I lived uh, uh, and still live in Berris and Edmonds and uh, as would be the case I was at home and uh, got a call to say that uh, a body had been discovered uh, in a ditch at Wangford and uh, as a result of that, I um, drove to the scene and met other officers there, and that initiated a major investigation. Um, what did you find when, when you got to the scene then? Um, obviously the scene had been um, uh, preserved and cordoned off, and there were uniformed officers present there. How aware were police back then of um, forensics and DNA? So I think the scientific awareness was there, um, what could be obtained from a scene was uh, still fairly rudimentary, really. We realised the value of clothing, we realised the value of um, uh, potential body contacts, um, but um, obviously uh, DNA was uh, very, very early days then. Uh, there was uh, uh, evidence of uh, decomposition there. Jeanette had um, gone missing on the 2nd of February, so you've got 16 days there. Um, and whatever the weather uh, in the exposed elements, you will have wildlife that will come along and um, sadly um, uh, attack 
um, whatever they find. And, uh, and, and quite a few of her possessions and clothes are missing as well. I think. Um, yeah, um, this was a, a major part really of the inquiry that um, uh, her coat was missing, uh, her shoes were missing, uh, her body was uh, partly clothed and um, also uh, it transpired that her purse had gone missing and um, a couple of rings and a bracelet um, as, as well. So uh, these were significant lines of inquiry uh, and again uh, at a later stage we found out that she should have been in possession of a wreath at some stage and uh, there was never any trace of that either. Did you believe from almost you know immediately that this was a, a murder? Yes, uh, obviously you've got a semi-naked uh, body of a lady in a ditch in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it was unlikely that she'd um, uh, come to some form of accident herself there. And um, so it was a suspicious situation that uh, was treated as a murder inquiry right from the start. And do you remember how long after that the pathologist established that she'd had this, this blow to her head and then had been strangled um, after that? Um, no, I can't remember in terms of uh, precise uh, time scale, but um, there was a need for the pathologist to uh, review his uh, initial findings and um, uh, there was obviously, uh, he came to the conclusion that there had been a blow with a blunt instrument to the head and also uh, manual strangulation there as well. So by manual strangulation, do, do you mean the hands or something else was used? Uh, it would, uh, from that we would gather that uh, it would be the hands that would be used to uh, strangle. And in terms of the instrument, that was never identified as, as to what type of... No, uh, all that could be uh, discerned was that it would be a blunt uh, instrument, so um, no, we couldn't speculate on that. And, and what was the significance of the fact that that she had this blow to her head perhaps one or two days before she was strangled to death? Um, the significance of that was never really um, uh, proven. Uh, one could speculate and say, well, it could have been the, uh, an incident uh, in which had come from a, an argument with somebody. Uh, it could have easily been that she'd have... Um, uh, there's a possibility that that could have been self-inflicted, um, but it was uh, the pathologist felt that it had been inflicted by somebody else to cause that type of injury. So that is the state John found the body in. We'll be hearing more from him in the next episode, but one massive clue he mentioned there is the fact Jeanette had a blow to her head, which a pathologist believed happened about 48 hours before her death. The blow was severe, but didn't kill her. That means for up to two days between being hit and being strangled to death, Jeanette would likely have been unconscious somewhere. But where, and was she hit after drinking at the pub in Brixton, or later? Could she have fallen and hit her head, and then been found by someone? We heard from Alan how the layout and architecture in the Brixton street Jeanette walked down outside the pub could mean she could disappear without anyone noticing a thing. John believes it's likely she met her killer here, in Brixton, and went off with them, thinking they were friendly, as opposed to being hit round the head and bundled into a car against her will. There'll be more on that in the next episode. Alan also touched on a big problem John faced, a lack of information from the Brixton end of his inquiries. As Alan alluded to, the area was recovering from a period of major change. 
Eight years earlier, the Brixton riot rocked South London, fueled by tension between the black community and the largely white metropolitan police force, as well as high unemployment and crime rates. In two days of rioting from April 10th to 12th, 280 police officers and 45 members of the public were injured. Another 56 police vehicles were burned. Then, in 1985, there was a second Brixton riot, this time sparked by the police shooting a black woman called Dorothy Gross, known as Cherry. She survived, but rumours spread she had been killed, and again there were riots. So this was the backdrop of the relations between police and the local community. In short, there was little trust between them, and when police appealed for help in Jeanette's case, they got almost nothing from the Brixton end. For us, 30 years later, it means that when you compare this to other cold cases, very little is known about the victim, and that may be why it's hardly remembered in either Brixton or Suffolk. Even looking back at old newspaper cuttings from the time, there are very few tributes paid to Jeanette. This is perhaps best summed up by her neighbour, a woman called Faye Nicholas, who told the Eastern Daily Press at the time. I used to go and see her by my window, and her two teenage boys, Michael and Alex, used to play with my two little children, but she was a quiet person. I last saw her three or four weeks ago, as she was going out, and she seemed okay then. She was getting in a car with Alex and another man. She didn't seem to have that many friends around here, and she was always indoors, or I would see her putting out her washing. She used to have a lot of men calling to her door, and sometimes there was a row and the police would have to be called. One of the few records we found of a friend paying tribute to Jeanette was in a newspaper article dated February the 24th, 1989. Patrick Hamilton, whom she knew from the Loughborough, said he had known her as a regular at the pub for 10 years. He paints a very different picture to the neighbour. She was a very respectable woman, he says. She would do anything for her boys and she adored them. She was a very popular person amongst everyone in here. She loved a game of pool as well. I can't believe what has happened. There was no reason for her to be in Suffolk at all. She didn't know anyone there and she had never been to that part of the country before. Patrick touches on another very important point in this case. Jeanette, as far as we know, had never been to Suffolk. She had no links to the area. So what was she doing up there? Was she alive when she was taken there and then killed? Or was she murdered in London and then driven up? And how long after February the 2nd was her body dumped in that field? Those are the questions we'll look at in the next episode, which will be with you next Friday. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unfinished with me, Tom Bristow. If you found it interesting, please share and recommend it with friends and leave us a review and rating on iTunes. You can also find out more about this case on the Eastern Daily Press website. That's www.edp24.co.uk and tap in on the Unfinished Podcast tab at the top of the homepage. Until next week, goodbye.